0: Good evening, all. Nice to have you back um, as we continue uh, our journey through uh, through Jewish history. Tonight's class is the rise of Hitler. Yemach Shemo, may his name be forever blotted out. Um, I I guess I should start really by saying I, I purposely, for two reasons, moved the class from being live. We've been quasi live and quasi, uh, you know, online on Zoom. Still, tonight is only only on Zoom for two reasons, a very practical reason and a more philosophic reason. The practical reason is the weather is miserable. Uh, There's very little parking in Schultz because of all the snow, and it's supposed to rain and then get cold, and I just didn't want to bother. There was already a small amount of people who actually came uh, live, so I didn't want to bother everybody uh, to bring come out. The second reason, more philosophical reason, is because tonight's topic is addressing the rise of Hitler, and the only two places that we'd been giving the class because of the fact that where we've been working through the shul has been either in the main shul or in the social hall, which has been converted into a shul. I didn't even want to have to say that name over and over and over again in uh, our shul where we daven and it just let, do it on Zoom. We're going to leave it at home tonight and we're not even going to have to, uh, we're not going to deal with that. Okay. That being the case, let us, let us begin. Okay. Um Fight. Here's the introduction. We've been discussing over the last couple of weeks, uh, post-World War I, where the Jewish world has been. We discussed the Palestine, the land of Palestine during the 20s and the development of the pre-state, the state of the Jewish communities. We discussed the US the last time we met together and the development of the Jewish community during the roaring 20s. The rest of Europe we've touched on has been, is, is, can be described as nothing other than absolute chaos in Russia, in Poland, uh, in Germany, everywhere after the war was total, total chaos. Each country, of course, had its own nature of the chaos, but the common thread throughout all of, of Europe after uh, World War I was total chaos. And that's the state that we find the Jewish people in. Um, and now tonight we have to deal with the rise of Hitler, which is really one of the most terrible and dramatic and unbelievable stories in all of world history. The, the large scale of death. The, the historians put the number at about 28 million people that died during the conflict of World War II. We, of course, uh, as Jews, focus on the 6 million, as well we should. But in summary, the war itself, the toll of human life, which was caused, it's, it's hard to say all because of one person, but very, to a great extent, because of one single person to sit on 28 million deaths is just a unfathomable, unfathomable number, it just altered civilization. And uh, we, you, can't, you can't address Jewish history in the 1900s and not address, obviously, uh, this topic. So while it is a little odd to have an entire topic addressing uh, Hitler, it is a major part of our uh, story of the destruction and the annihilation that he's directly responsible for and therefore demands our attention. Now, I must note I am not a German historian, and what we're going to be discussing tonight will not be a full in-depth story of or analysis of the politics and the culture of post-World War I Germany that led to the rise of Hitler. That's beyond, that. I don't want to set any expectations beyond what we're going to do. We will try to cover some of the basic facts because... Because there's a certain dual nature that we have to address when we when we discuss Hitler and his rise. On the one hand, there's a lot to study, to learn from, to understand what were the factors that allowed him to rise to power. It is a fascinating sociology study. Just how did this happen that he became a dictator in such a short amount of time. So on the one hand, we we have to study and and learn from it. Um, On the other hand, there's another aspect of this story that it is so illogical, it is so replete with miraculous survivals and successes against all odds, it's almost hard not to see the divine nature in it, that such an individual became the powerful person that he became and survived what he went through It's hard to ignore the divine nature. Hitler himself, this was not lost on him. That he felt that there was a divine guidance that he had for his mission. We, of course, would see it differently. And without getting into any of the theology of the Holocaust, which is well beyond anyone's ability to comment on how did God let this happen? How did it, Where was He? all of the questions which we're not addressing at all tonight, nor were we when we talk about the Holocaust? The fact that it happened, the fact that it happened through the hands of the Hitler, when every or almost every factor pointed to it can't be, it just has to be acknowledged. So there's a part of this which we have to learn and understand, and a part of it just to sort of see how things happen. And as the course of all of Jewish history has been, a divine hand guiding. Sometimes it's a divine hand guiding as we've seen the birth of the state of Israel, and sometimes it's in terrible calamity and destruction. But almost nothing is without the divine hand guiding the story of the Jewish people. So let us begin this particular uh, topic. In the early years, Hitler was born in a small town of Linz in Austria, not in Germany. Probably, if you were to ask just your average citizen, in, you know, around uh, around the world, you know, where was Hitler born? I would imagine almost everybody would assume Germany, and we'll see. Actually, is, is of course not the case. And by uh, almost all accounts, from his earliest years, was a a stra- a little strange, and a loner. Though some reports, if you uh, look into it a little bit, will attribute it to uh, some traumatic events that he had in his childhood. His brothers died. Uh, he, he actually, we'll see in a moment, that three of his, of his siblings never survived even infancy. Um, but one of his brothers died very young from measles and his father died when he was just 14 very suddenly. So there are some historians who paint a picture that he was actually rather normal, until some of these traumatic events, but these events certainly uh, shaped him. None of this, of course, is to condone or pardon or uh, in any way uh, explain away uh, what he became. He, uh, at a young age, wanted to be a painter and was not very good at it. And that sort of just, the, the historians also like to note that as fitting into this narrative that the world Uh, didn't see him for what he thought he could be um, and was a frustrating aspect, of course, uh, to him. There are numerous anti-Semitic leanings uh, evident early on, but no one can ever point to any one thing. And almost in situations like this where there was such a hatred that drove him, it's pretty hard to pin it on any one thing. But there are a number of things uh, that you can find, a number of books that he was given along the way in his youth um, with very anti-Semitic Uh, uh, themes to them. And clearly, uh, as in most situations, a number of events eventually led to uh, what his uh, really just psychopathic obsession uh, against the Jewish people became. He moves eventually to Vienna, uh, he's, he's back and forth. His family had moved to Germany when he was young and then they moved back to Vienna. He was, but he was pretty much by 16 a young man and alone when he began to develop theories on race, which were not necessarily his. They existed before him, but he uh, continued to develop. And uh, while in Vienna, as this young man, his, his, his Jew hatred really becomes just an obsession. Skipping or fast forwarding, this obsession with the destruction of the Jewish people really became a war strategy, and even as is well documented when the end of Nazi Germany was obvious and it was in its last few days, weeks, he was still doing anything possible, directing uh, trains away from the war effort to, to, to Auschwitz and, and other camps, of course, uh, and, and felt that they had some level of victory despite the destruction of the Nazi regime, but they were able, of course, to destroy European Jewry. And uh, Eichmann himself said, you know, he would go to his grave happy in the knowledge that he helped destroy millions of Jews. And that was not just bravado. That was, that was a viewpoint of a goal of a mission in life, and Hitler shared that. His last statement in his political Last Will and Testament was that the war against the Jews must be continued despite his death and despite Germany's demise, but this is a world view of what needed to be done. As I mentioned earlier, he escapes death time and time again. It's really astounding uh, that he survived at all. Besides for the fact... That three of his six siblings die in infancy, so there was a fifty-four percent chance that he would have never. We would have never heard of uh, Adolf Hitler, but he is one of the fifty percent of his family that did survive. He joins the German army in World War One. Again, he's Austrian. In his mind, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, which will collapse at the end of the First World War, was already hopelessly decrepit, it was corrupt, it was a hollow shell, and he saw Germany was going to be the most representative of this Aryan race. In an interesting uh, post, um, in a 1924 report to the Bavarian authorities, it was, it was reported that allowing Hitler to serve was certainly an administrative error because as an Austrian citizen, and Austria was of course involved in the war, he should have been returned to Austria and should have never been allowed to serve for Germany, which he does. In fact, later in life, he has to formally renounce his Austrian citizenship, which he does not do until 1925. He's born in 1889, and he does not acquire German citizenship until 7 years later, 1932, when he needs to become chancellor. He does not have German citizenship and is actually an Austrian citizen for uh, almost all of his life. Um, As I mentioned, in terms of just escaping death, three of his six siblings do not survive infancy. He serves as a runner in the German army, which is during the First World War, which a runner was, of course, in those days before uh, texting, they didn't even have WhatsApp, none of that stuff, email. So you had to run messages along the front lines from one group to another. And the life expectancy would generally be measured in hours, maybe days it was often nobody wanted that job. It was a way that uh, commanding officers sometimes uh, were able to execute particular soldiers that they didn't actually want to execute, but it was a way to have them killed. Um, and then Hitler serves and survives almost four years on the front, never achieving any major uh, place as a soldier behind the line, but he was on the front lines and uh, survived in uh, quite a number of episodes. He was wounded in a gas attack, uh, attack right before the end of the war. He lost vision in one of his eyes temporarily. Uh, his recovery took a number of ta- uh, years. During uh, and He's eventually going to write in his uh, Mein Kampf how uh, many of the wounded soldiers lying next to him uh, would die with wounds far less severe than his, but he somehow just survived and survived and survived. And he took all of this as a message that he was chosen by providence for a special message. And indeed... Throughout his life, everything he experienced, uh, these miraculous salvations um, and many attempts on his life, historians record at least 18 known assassination attempts. That is an astounding number. Generals, high ranking officers, people with direct Direct access to him, who left bomb everything, nothing ever succeeded, and every time he su- he survived, just continued to strengthen within him that there was this divine providence, and he had to live up to whatever it was that he was supposed to uh, supposed to create. After the war. Um, the turmoil, Germany, of course, if you remember, we discussed after the Treaty of Versailles was in a total mess, besides for the fact that it lost the war, um, and all the soldiers that had been killed, and the economy was crushed, and then the treaty imposed all sorts of harsh sanctions, and as we discussed, um, in, I think, it was if I remember correctly, it was last year, right? at the end of our session last year, uh, the Allies thought that the treaty would somehow like beat Germany into submission. And of course, it had the opposite effect. It was so harsh that it created a tremendous sense of disillusionment. It created a, a tremendous sense of wanting to just rebel and regain. It, was, it had a, almost the opposite effect of what they wanted, which is really what Hitler was able to uh, tap into. Um, so a number of nationalist parties are formed in Germany. They created the Weimar Republic um, in, in the wake of the Treaty of Versailles. So there were a number of what they were called the folk parties, and these were nationalist parties, and they all shared some common themes uh, as follows. Number one, they believed as nationalist parties that Germany didn't actually lose the war, but it was betrayed into losing the war. Someone else You know, the classic, I couldn't have been us that we lost. Somebody had to have stabbed us in the back, as we discussed in the past. And it was generally the left or the Jews who were the ones responsible for the fact that Germany lost. So that's one common theme. The second was that the Weimar Republic, which was the democracy set up after the war to run Germany, was was never going to work. It was hopelessly unwieldy. It was inefficient. And that was there needed to be something... To replace, They had been, of course, a a monarchy until that point, and this was their uh, foray into democracy, and that it was never going to work. So we had someone else to blame, something else stabbed us in the back while we lost. What has been set up in its place is never going to work, and there needs to be a call to law and order. One of the common themes of nationalist parties, there needs to be strong law and order, German culture in general uh, abhors chaos, uh, and uh, Germany post-World One was, if nothing else but chaotic, and uh, it was better to have an autocratic regime rather than this type of chaos. Uh, Hitler was the, officially the 555th, so one may, might have been the 505th, member of a folk party founded in 1921, just a couple years after the war, called the National Socialist Party, which in German would make sense why that would become known as the Nazi party. Um, they started the numbers at 500. They wanted it to seem like they were bigger. So he was either the 55th, maybe even the 5th member. It's a small, small little party. It was actually not socialist at all. He was very anti-communism. Um, and it was a party that was not going anywhere and there was no reason for it to go anywhere except for the fact that Hitler galvanized the party and he imbued it with a platform and spirit and turned it into a real uh, political uh, force. Two years later... In 1923, um, he gets involved in a coup, an attempted uh, overthrow of the government known as the Beer Hall Putsch. Um, he tries to overthrow the German government. He gets the backing of one of the Germany's most decorated military heroes, gentlemen by the name of Erich von Lundendorff, uh, And it failed miserably. He was arrested. And unfortunately, as is often the case, uh, Rabbi Beryl Wein likes to say many, many times in uh, in a Jewish uh, history perspective that there have been many books that have been banned throughout Jewish history. And he has said many, many times I've heard from him, the best way to bring attention to a book that you don't want anyone to read is to ban it. Put it in chayim. As soon as you ban a book, everybody wants to know what it says. If you want a book, To go into the waste bin of history, just ignore it. And so this added, this is sort of what happened to Hitler in his failed a coup, and they arrested him, they throw him into jail and make a big show of it, and what it ended up doing was bringing far more attention and national sympathy to him and his cause than might otherwise have been there. In his prison stay, he was treated very leniently, it was like a house arrest, it became a media event that almost like earned him the sympathy of the masses. During this time in jail, which only lasted about a year, he writes his Mein Kampf, which is his rambling anti-Semitic semi-autobiographical political testament. Um, And he basically outlines what Germany needs to do to regain its superior, dominant, and domineering place on the world stage. Remember, again, he's tapping into a, 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 a defeated army, a proud country that has been defeated and humiliated in the Treaty of Versailles. And he says, this is what we need to do in order to regain... Our standing. He spells it out. Number one, we're going to unify Germany with Austrian, all German speaking people in Europe. Number two, we're going to totally abrogate the Treaty of Versailles. We're going to take back the territory that was taken from Germany. We're going to dismantle Czechoslovakia, take back the port of Danzig, which was given to Poland, and we're going to destroy the virus known as the Jewish people destroy Bolshevism in Russia, anything communism-related was an enemy of the German people, and expand German borders of what he called Lebensraum, which was the living room. The German people need more living space, and by rights, we have the rights to do so. Now, to most people, Mein Kampf was a long-winded tome filled with absolute nonsense by a political prisoner. But as we've seen in our own day, um, in, in uh, certain political uh, systems, uh, when a person speaks right-wing, strong, nationalistic uh, uh, ideas, there's going to be an element of society that's going to latch onto that, particularly during times of tremendous economic depression, after the war, and in chaos. And he said, clearly, what people wanted to hear. We're taking back German pride. We're getting rid of the treaty. We're getting rid of the land that was, we're getting back the land that was taken from us. We need more living space and we are going to regain our position, our God-given rights, our position amongst the world powers. Now, despite the fact that, again, most people viewed it as nonsense, between 1925 and 1932, he sells almost 230,000 copies. And when he's going to come to power uh, a couple of years later, in 1933, a million copies are going to be sold in 1933 in his first year in office. That is a lot of people reading this nonsense. Today, you could still get it. It is still available in bookstores. Um, and translated into many languages. However, what is just a historical, fascinating point, most, if not all, of the nonsense that he writes about became true. He did what he set out to do. Now, in hindsight, we can now say he was dramatically and tragically misjudged. He was completely uncontrollable but he literally told the world in advance what to expect and he set out and he did it. There is something to be said for that on a lot of levels. Number one, again, I've I've quoted this from Rabbi Wein, I'm sure there are others who say that. Well, if nothing that Jewish history has taught us is that when our enemies say they're planning on destroying us, we believe them. This has been said many times in modern Israel history, you know, from 1948 until now. When the Arabs say we're gonna destroy you, we take that seriously. When someone says, and they lay out a plan of what they want to do, we don't have the luxury of saying, ah, foolish, ah, it'll never happen. We have learned time and time again to take it seriously. And and here was an example of someone who who laid it out and said what he was going to do, and unfortunately, obviously for the world and for us, uh, did it. What were some of the other factors that allowed him to rise from literally nothing to complete dictatorship? So he took advantage of a tremendous fear of communism taking over Germany. So besides the chaos that's reigning throughout Germany, there was a fear of takeover, a fear of communism. Communism actually saw Germany as the next great country to take over, right after Russia, and they're the most likely to turn, especially coming after the war. And Trotsky and Lenin, they put a lot of effort into mobilizing their forces, and the Communist Party was a major party in Germany, and they were hoping to expand the revolution to Germany. The rest of the population had a tremendous fear of that, that communism would come and take over the country. The Communist Party was led by a woman of Jewish birth, Rosa Luxemburg, uh, known as Red Rose, And the Jews were very prominent in the Communist Party in Germany as they were in Russia. And the Communist Party was in firm control of the labor unions. And that was a major, major uh, red button or or hot button topic because one of the things that. sped up the end of the World War, the First World War, was that the German labor force wasn't loyal to the Kaiser anymore, meaning he wanted them to work and produce what they needed for the war, and they went on strike. And when they went on strike, the German war machine basically faltered, and that was one of the major um, chinks in the armor, so to speak, that they weren't able to continue being able uh, to produce what they needed. And then throughout the 20s, that idea of violent strikes just dominated the, the landscape, uh, fighting, rioting, deaths. It was, it was a chaotic time. It's hard to, to, it's not so hard to us imagine when we have pictures of what went on in Germany. But this is even before the Second World. It was just a scene of, of chaos. And Hitler capitalizes on this fear. And he had a ready response for the German people who were uh, afraid of communism more And they were afraid of what he stood for. Because he, at least, is German nationalism. So that we can handle. Okay, he's got some fringe things that seem a little bit odd or a little bit crazier. We have to be afraid of a little bit. But that's better than the threat of communism coming in. But still, May 1928... This is now 10 years after the war. He's already eight years, seven years into his political career. In the 1928 federal elections, the Nazi party is still only getting 2.6% of the vote. So he's still on the fringe. He is still on the fringe. One of the greatest skills, of course, that he has is that he was a gifted orator. Um, And that I I think, you know, even... um, even, uh, uh, I think, for us Jews, uh, you know, who are uh, so, um, so still colored by the Holocaust, as we should be and will be for many, many years, but when you hear him speak, there is something mesmerizing about how he spoke. And even if you're listening to a speech and you have the subtitles and you, and you hear him talking about killing us, the, the 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 way the cadence what, there was something to it. It was uh, he had a skill. He simply did, and he can go on for hours, hours at a time, mesmerizing his audience. Like almost like people listening would describe this hypnotic trance that one would fall into just listening to him go on. And he he understood uh, the psychology of of domination, of of power, of force, of clarity. And there's something we in all aspects of life. When someone gets up and gives a strong, powerful vision of there, there's something about that. And then we combine that with with his, his his hatred, his blaming others, his solution for us getting back to our power, and and the way that he spoke, it was it was an essential ingredient. It just was, and it has to be acknowledged. And and one needs to be weary of demagogues who, who have that particular ability. He also learned to use the radio, which was a revolutionary media component in its time. And just like across the ocean, uh, Roosevelt's uh, fireside chats was able to move a generation. He was able to enter into people's homes through the voice You could hear the voice of the president in your home through the radio. This was a novel concept, which is to us, no big deal. Everybody's got a blog, everybody's got a podcast. Anybody's voice can be in your uh, living room or in your AirPods anytime that you want. But this was a novel idea that you could hear directly from directly from certain leaders. And his his speeches were broadcast all over the world. Uh, Americans in the U.S. who couldn't understand German were were able to listen and somehow pick up on his intents, the dynamism with, with, with which he spoke. Um, and he utilized that. He was able to tap into that new method. The next thing that he was able to do was win the German street. And this was, of course, a very important component in, a, in an era of chaos to sort of regain control. He mobilized what was literally criminal elements, uh, street thugs. Um, and he mobilized them to literally beat up his enemies. Uh, this became a paramilitary organization known as the Brown Shirts, which is, of course, named after the shirts that they wore, their uniforms. And uh, Hitler literally took thugs, the unemployed people off the street. There was a tremendous amount of unemployment to, uh, post-war. And he gave them a shirt with an armband, with a swastika, taught them to the salute, gave them a stick and said, you're not my paramilitary, go beat people up. Uh, and they did, and suddenly powerless people had power, which is another major component, what to be aware of, to to learn from. He gave those who didn't have a voice, not just a voice, but he gave them a stick, and he then gave them direction, and now they were driven. They had a mission. They were accomplished. They weren't just thugs. They were bringing back German German aristocracy and and their power. Now, none of this, as he uh, continues, could have come about without financial backing. You always need money. So, where did he get all the money from? So. Another fascinating thing was he took advantage of German industrialists because the German industrialists were afraid of communism, and communism was making headway, and that was their biggest fear. Who was the champion who was going to fight communism? The government was weak. The republic was new. It didn't have the ability, so the industrialists, to protect their own interests through their support and their funds behind Hitler, despite the fact that he did and said a lot of things that they were not comfortable with. But at the end of the day, if you own a big business, if you own big industry, and you're interested in, in, in uh, protecting yourself more than anything else, you're going to support the candidate or the party that's going to offer you the ability to continue making money. And uh, that's what happened. Um, since he wasn't a communist calling for the seizure and nationalization of their businesses, so they thought money, money talks and money will control him. And one of many errors or misjudgments along the way, that he could be controlled, that he could be reined in. They threw a lot of money and financial support at him to protect their own interests, thinking that they can control him. That, of course, did not happen that way. Another major factor is, of course, the Depression, the Depression, which hits in 1929. It began, of course, in the U.S. and spread throughout the industrialized world. When it reaches Germany, which is now just 10, 11 years post-World War Trying to get back on its feet, the depression just completely knocks them off of their game. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are unemployed. Government is not dealing. In fact, the government's 10 years old. Nobody's equipped to deal. The U.S. wasn't equipped to deal with this. Certainly not in Germany to be able to deal with this. So Germany needed a savior. And they needed a scapegoat. They needed somebody to blame and they needed somebody to get them out of it. And Hitler was, I, I, you can't say the right place in the right time because you can't say anything about him being right, but that's what happened. He was already a couple years now into his political career. He had risen close to the top of his particular party and he had a vision for getting them out and he had a scapegoat for the problem. And the he is their savior and of course the Jew was going to be the scapegoat. Now, remember, in 28, in May of 1928, he only gets 2.6% of the vote. In September 1930, less than two years later, but after the Depression hits, he already, the Nazi party is now the second largest party in Germany with 18% of the vote. There was no majority, so the party ahead of him was only at 25, 30%. He's the second largest party in Germany, um, and he felt already victory was, was close. What happens then is he lets the brown shirts loose more than ever before. If you read histories, and again, our topic is not to get into the depth of, you know, the German political scene. It was absolute total anarchy on the streets. Actual, not just fistfights, gunfights, murders, assassinations, politically driven. In Germany, um, in the late twenties and early thirties, there are pitched battles fought with his political enemies, and it is not metaphorical that there were political battles. There were battles. There were fist fights on the floor of the Reichstag. There were he terrorized the opposition. Hooligan It was it it was a crazy time. It was an absolute crazy time. If, if you're interested, you know, you could just Google Wikipedia, you know, the rise of Hitler. You could read up the detailed, detailed line by line, year by year, month by month, what was going on on the streets. The first recorded major anti-Jewish action is in October of 1930. Um, a group of Nazi brown shirts smashed the window of Jewish owned stores in or Platz, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, but that was the first like organized specific attack in 1930. And I I mention that just because we're all familiar with the story of why didn't they get out? Didn't they see the writing on the wall? Obviously, nobody, nobody could have imagined what was coming. And yes, there was plenty of writing on the wall. And this is the tricky part. There's there's often anti-Semitic attacks. There have been anti-Semitic attacks in the US and in Canada. And most of the times we just say, you know, crazies, bunch of hooligans. And it's impossible to know when this particular act of a hooligan is going to be the starting point of an entire movement versus just some, a one a one-off, you know, random, crazy event, and uh, it's already beginning in nineteen thirty. You already begin um, of of open uh, attacks, and it was not a pleasant place for the Jews already for for a while. Um, now the Weimar Republic is trying to appease him to avoid civil war. We have a weak government, and we have a rising nationalistic Nazi party. But the more they appeased him, the more powerless they were to stop him from taking even bolder steps. And this is also that dynamic of this political decision people have to make of, maybe if we give in a little bit here, that will appease them and then they'll leave us alone. Versus, if we appease them a little bit, they're just going to want to take more. We've, we've been through this story in, in the Arab-Israeli dynamic over the last 20, 30, who knows how long it's been, where there are always these voices that say, you know, give in a little bit to the Arabs and then they'll be fine. They'll give us peace. And the other voices and what's clearly you know, shown itself over the last 20, 30, the more you give in, the more it emboldens them to take more. It doesn't quite work that way in, in a negotiation with somebody who has that kind of vision for your total annihilation. So the Weimar report public trying to hold on to the government, trying to balance, trying to avoid a civil war, give in, give in, a little here, a little there, but it, it all it served to was embolden him Uh, To do more and more. By 1932, remember it was in 28. He's only at 2.6 percent. By 1930, post depression, he's at 18 percent. In the 1932 elections, they also had a lot of elections. The Nazi Party is already now the largest party. Um, They're at 37 percent of the votes, but it's still not a majority. So it's still only 37. It's you know four out of every ten people are supporting them, but all the other parties take up everything else. So they become the the largest but without a majority. Um, the president of the Weimar Republic at the time was a war hero, General Paul von Hindenburg. Um, now Hitler wants to be appointed chancellor, which is the second most powerful position to the president, and only the president can grant that. And even though von Hindenburg had been resisting the Nazis all along, um, again, trying to give in, hoping that this would mollify him, he eventually uh, does uh, appoint him to be the chancellor, but it's still under a, a functioning government. Hitler was able to employ really a genius combination, um, and this is for whatever to learn, it's just one of the realities. It was a combination of diplomacy together with terror and intimidation. Meaning to say, you have certain people who just utilize one or the other. They just somehow with, throughout diplomacy, um, figure out a way to take control, and then you have those who just use terror. He balanced the two. He he was the head of a party, and they voted, and they had like official stature, and they were a legal party, and he was terrorizing the opposition, literally terrorizing, murdering. There were assassinations. The brown shirts were running loose, and within this combination of I'm a legitimate candidate, I have a party, vote for me, and terror and intimidation combined the two to just rise and rise and rise. Eventually, he gets power, and once he gets power, there's no one who who controls him. He just increases the activities of the uh, brown shirts, literally beating to death, opposing politicians. Politicians were were beaten to death. And in 1933, his party, the Nazi party, which is the majority power, presents the, the Reichstag with the Enabling Act, which was a bill which would give him absolute power um, and make, basically make the Reichstag itself powerless. Now, while it was political suicide to vote for it, the, only the social democrats voted against it and it passes into law because everybody was afraid of him. I don't want to bring in any um, you know, modern-day examples, but th- the way the press reports Bill 96 here in Quebec, there are so many interest groups for whom... Aspects of Bill 96 go against their business sense. But no group is willing to vote against it because since the it was positioned as to protect the French language, no one wants to be caught going against protecting the French language. That's political suicide. So everyone's voting for something which or is not standing up against, even though there are parts of it that nobody likes. So just as a just as a modern-day example, so There were aspects of this enabling act that didn't make any sense, but there was a crisis, and everybody votes him in. It was supposed to be a four-year emergency grant, which, of course, was the end. Once he had it, uh, there was no uh, stopping it. And In the summer of 1934, or 34, I forget, President Hindenburg dies. He was already, already, he was already at that point almost senile, um, and he has complete control over Germany at that point. Immediately he abolishes the rights of all opposing parties. It was illegal to be part of any party other than the Nazi Party by this point. The army swears allegiance directly to him personally, not to Germany, but to Hitler. And uh, he has, again, this is a, a very brief synopsis and I'm sure a historian would say we missed out many, many points and that's fine. That's not our agenda for tonight. By 1934, he has achieved complete control of, uh, of Germany as its uh, complete dictator. Now, the Jews are wary and obvious uh, of its, uh, it, or I should say, are um, aware of how dangerous this is, but oblivious to the extent of the danger, which of course makes sense. And the truth is, it's still five years away until he's going to actually launch World War II. Things take time. It's always uh, complicated to remember that. But just as a couple of quotes from the time, just to sort of see the sentiment of the Jews at the time, in, um, in uh, January, this is in 19, uh, early 1930s, uh, the steering committee of the Central Jewish German Organization wrote that as a matter of course... The Jewish community faces this new government with the largest mistrust, meaning this is bad. We understand the mistrust, but at the same time, they were convinced that nobody would dare to touch their constitutional rights. And this just reflects the basic Complete underestimation of what was taking place. Like we have constitutional rights, nobody would dare touch that. Sure, they're discussing all of these anti-Semitic laws, but we have constitutional rights. We're citizens here. We've been citizens here for hundreds of years, and that was the general sentiment as he's rising to power. Despite the fact that he wrote explicitly, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy the Jews. I'm going to kick them out. We're going to murder them. We're going to get rid. The world is going to be rid of this virus. But we have constitutional rights. Nobody can touch those. Uh, The Jewish newspaper in in fact writes that within the German nation still the forces are active that would turn against the barbarian anti-Jewish policy. Meaning they believed the German people are active enough the forces within Germany if there were to be a barbarian anti-Jewish policy the people would never stand for it. And these again are things that we're all familiar with how It was misread. Everybody misread, everybody misjudged, and it was a tragic, tragic uh, misunderstanding of the situation. The Third Reich is given, uh, has been, uh, is born. And uh, Hitler is uh, free to implement the policies that he had before only spoken about, and those were three main policies that he was going to implement, which he said he was going to do, and he did. Number one, he was going to abrogate the Treaty of Versailles, which, and he was convinced that he could bluff the entire world and get it done without war, and he was right. Uh, almost all of his initial victories without a firing a shot, and not until nineteen thirty nine that he fights a war. But from 34 already, he's going to completely abrogate the treaty. And he was convinced that he would be able to convince the entire world to go along with him. Number two, which is, of course, uh, our main objective, is the destruction of the Jews. First, their elimination from Germany and then from all of Europe. Um, Six years, Germany is already encouraging Jewish immigration just to to get out, persecuting them so severely uh, through government-sanctioned laws, raising the volume of anti-Semitism. Most Jews even left. Uh, even though it meant leaving behind everything, their wealth, their land, that they had lived, they had fought for, uh, those who could get out uh, did. But again, m- most just couldn't believe what was actually coming despite government sh- sanction laws, despite the fact that a dictator had arisen who was overtly anti-Semitic and said what he was going to do. But uh, we still needed to learn the lesson of believe them. Remember also, let's just comment again, the there wasn't much many places for the Jews to go at this point. If you remember, of course, the U.S. in the mid-20s already had almost closed off immigration. They didn't want uh, European war refugees coming to the States, as we discussed last week, two weeks ago. Palestine also was not simple to get to um, because of the white papers that the, uh, the the English had had passed. So there were not a lot of places to go. Those two factors, besides what was going on in Germany itself, the fact that you couldn't get to the U.S. easily, you couldn't get to Palestine easily, there weren't many places to go. As, 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 so even if a Jew in Germany said, this is terrible, we got to go, he didn't have a lot of options. And the third goal that Hitler um, set about to implement, besides for getting rid of the Treaty of Versailles, besides for destroying the Jews, was achieving full employment and a resilient German economy, which, of course, spoke to just about everybody in Germany. And that was going to be accomplished by clandestinely putting the Germany economy on wartime footing. There's nothing like a war to jumpstart production, to jumpstart uh, all different things that you need. And uh, he was going to unite the labor forces, the industrialists, and earn the loyalty of the army. And he was going to reestablish German honor through a resilient economy in a wartime method. And uh, he put all of those things uh, together. Uh, with one, we'll close with one quote from him. Which he speaks to in speaking to a British correspondent in Berlin in June of 1934, shortly after coming to power. He said as follows: Quote, at the risk of appearing to talk nonsense, I tell you that the National Socialist Movement will go on for a thousand years, he said. This is I'm not starting a fad. A thousand years, he said. This National Socialist Movement will take over Germany and take over the world. Don't forget, he wrote he said how people laughed at me 15 years ago when I declared that one day I should govern Germany. They laugh now, just as foolishly, when I declare that I shall remain in power. Now, in truth, thankfully, his Third Reich only lasted 12 years. But in those dozen years, the level of harm, destruction, death, Annihilation. You know, again, we talk about the six million, the destruction of European Jewry, which had been in Europe for a thousand years, and he wiped it out, um, 28 million lives uh, over the course of the war. Uh, and that was only in 12 years. But uh, as he said himself, it appears that I'm talking nonsense, but they laughed at me then and they can laugh at me now. I'm telling you, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it. And as we, when we learn about the war, eventually what turned the tide of the war, he ran into the Russian bear of winter and a number of other uh, military errors eventually ended the war. The U.S., of course, got involved, um, all of which was too late for our six million brethren who perished um, over the course of the war. But uh, any, any uh, history series addressing what we're working towards, which is the birth of the modern state of Israel, so what colors the entire period from 1930 to 1950, that 20-year period, which will be the climax of this particular series, has to be done with the background of Hitler coming to power in Germany and the havoc that he'll wreak uh, on the entire world, uh, of course, particularly the Jewish world, all of which will set us up for the years leading into the creation of the state of Israel. So let me mention now, before we close, this is going to be our last one, take a winter break. Um, This will be our last class for about a month. We'll pick up again mid uh, January. Um, So uh, before I forget, I'll announce that now and uh, look forward to uh, finishing up the last couple classes as we work towards um, the 30s. Um, and of course, the 40s, the Holocaust, and then everything that leads up to the, uh, the state of Israel. So we, uh, everybody enjoy a month off. Hope you guys get to Florida. And if not, uh, we'll uh, touch base on Zoom um, along the way. Have a great night, everyone.